Uh, We're reading this morning will be out of Acts chapter 10, verses 38 to 43. So that's Acts chapter 10, verses 38 to 43. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him, after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for such a just a beautiful reminder of your plans with Christ and all the witnesses that you gave us to um, uh, encourage us and teach us, Lord, and we praise you for that. We thank you for today, just to be able to hear your word and be refreshed with it. Pray that you would um, help Steve with clarity and uh, just open our minds and hearts again, as you did when we first believed, to be uh, excited about you and your future, your plans, as you um, lay them out for, before us in your word, and we thank you for that, and just pray that you bless our time, in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. Glad that you can be here to sing together. Indeed, we have wonderful music. I wouldn't want to be any other place but here singing songs to the Lord together. And, of course, we can have our fellowship and, of course, now our time in our, the Word together. The primary message of the Bible is the gospel, that God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, wants to save sinners from sin and death and give us eternal life. And we've been looking at the gospels in the last couple times, the gospel of John, which I believe explains the gospel more thoroughly. And the others do a good job, too, but what it talks about here in John is really unique and different than the others, and very important for us to understand. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 27. As you remember last time, we talked about John three sixteen, and those verses that a lot stated there. But John three twenty seven, we continue. Now here we have John the Baptist, and he is talking, and he says there in 27, Jesus answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of all, because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here, Jesus is the bridegroom. And we are the bride. 
And Jesus greatly loves for us, shown primarily by the fact that he died for us. He went to the cross and paid for our sins, and, and he'll love us forever. And one thing to understand is that he loves us and cherishes us much more than we could ever, ever realize. And that Jesus is the bridegroom means that he is our husband, he is our head, he is our leader, he is our Lord. And he wants us to be holy so that we can have this spiritually intimate relationship with him. Verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from a heaven is above all. So Jesus is above all. He's on earth. People didn't really realize that, but he is the one who's supreme. He's infinitely greater than any other person or being, and he has more power, more knowledge, more wisdom, more love, more joy than any other being. And he wants us, and this is what's amazing, he wants us then to personally know him, to have this relationship with him where we can look to him and learn from him and love him. I think of the example, that great example of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Verses 33 and 34, he has received, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is that God is true. And this means Jesus is true because Jesus is his Son. If the Father is true, then the Son is true. We understand that. There's no error or falsehood in Jesus. Everything that he says is perfect. It's right and true and it's necessary. It's what we need to know. And it's really what every person in the world needs to know, this truth about Jesus Jesus speaks the words of God. I like this part. When he was on earth, Jesus always, you think about this, always spoke the words of God. Always. He never, never spoke the words of men. He was a godly man. He was the son of God, always speaking the words of God, words that are true and powerful, words that we need to know, and words that we need to believe. You look at this, I've mentioned before, some of you have a red letter edition, which is I have. You see Jesus' words in red. The whole Bible is the word of God. But then you look at the red. Well, that's what Jesus said. I want to know what Jesus said. So it's all true. It's all right. But the words of Jesus, the words of God are spoken to us. And this is an amazing thing. As you all know, there are in the world, there are God's words and there are men's words. And this world, as you know, is, is really, really filled with the words of men. And now that we are in this information age, you have the words of men all over the place. You get on the internet, you can access all this information, you can read things, you can watch podcasts, you can watch things on TV. There's all this information, all this men's words. But we all understand that God's word is infinitely, eternally more important and more valuable and meaningful to us than anything else. It says in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. And then you go to 1 Peter 4.10. Interesting verse. It's talking about gifts, and it divides gifts into two categories, the serving gifts and the speaking gifts. And we all have either serving gifts or speaking gifts, or we can have a blend of that as well. But this is what it says. Very interesting. I think this relates to those with speaking gifts, but I think in one hand it relates to all of us. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who speaks the utterances of God. Isn't that, that's a powerful verse. Whoever speaks. And so you think about that for your life. We want to be ones who are speaking in a godly way, speaking then the utterances of God. That's what God has for us. So Jesus then, he was focused on proclaiming the gospel message, that was his focus. You go through these pages of John and the other gospels. This is his main 
uh, point here, and we must believe what Jesus says about the gospel. And then we can know God, we can know Jesus, and we can have then this eternal life. And, and believing in the gospel then results in being born again. We looked at John 3, 3 says that, born again. And it's by the spirit that we're born again. It's by the spirit that we are saved. It's by the spirit that we live the life that God has for us. And I like what it says here. He gives the spirit without measure. Sometimes as Christians, we can feel like I just, I'm too weak. I don't have enough. And God gives you all that you need through his spirit and through his word. That's what he does. You have all you need. No shortage of the spirit. God gives the spirit. Christ gives the spirit without measure. So you can be all that he wants you to be. You can do all that God wants you to do. We go to verse 36, the last verse of this chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's, it's, it's one of those solo gospel verses. It, it tells you, hey, if you believe, you have life. And there's a number of these. The John 3, 16 is a verse like that. John 5, 24, we'll look at later, is like that. A lot of verses. And it just sums everything up in one, one, in one phrase, one verse here. And so we're to believe in the Son that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again. And the result of believing is very simple. He makes it so simple here. We need to see the simplicity of the gospel. You believe in Jesus and you have eternal life. And, and this eternal life, we've talked about it. I talked about it maybe a couple messages ago. It's a loaded, powerful phrase. Having this relationship with God himself, you go on the street and you talk to somebody. I know God. I talk to God. He talks to me. They, they might think you're sort of weird or strange or crazy. But that's the truth. All of us as believers, we have this eternal life. We have this relationship with God, and we can talk to him. And it's a relationship that results in God's grace and joy and mercy and peace and power and, yes, purpose, too. Very important to understand this, that as people, we have meaning and purpose in life because of God giving us his son, God giving us eternal life. And this is a wonderful thing that God has for us. The, the, the second part of this verse Contrast, and this is interesting here because you don't see this very often, contrast with believing with not obeying the Son. You see, God commands us to believe in the Son. That is, God is commanding us to get saved. That's, that's what's being said here. And being saved, then, is a matter of obedience. Some people think, well, yeah, I'm not going to believe. If you don't believe, you're not obeying God. You're not obeying Christ. It's a matter of obedience or disobedience, this salvation that we are talking about. And God wants us to believe in his son and trust in him for salvation. That's what Christ wants as well. So it's just interesting how it says it. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, says, A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So we see how it says it there. And then this verse in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, powerful verse. To those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. One of the strongest verses about the, the results if you're not believing. Those who do not obey the gospel, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Strong, strong. Those who don't obey the gospel, who, who don't believe and the Son will be eternally destroyed. This is, of course, what verse 36 says, that, that we're under the wrath of God. That's what it means. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 7 says this. It says, The utterances, no, Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That says it. Sometimes I was reading a track recently, and it's a good author, and he's talking about the consequences of not believing. Nothing there about hell. 
nothing there about eternal fire, but it's very clear. The consequences, the consequences, understanding the punishment of eternal fire. I was thinking about this, you know, it's a very tragic thing. Oh, I assume I've heard about the fire over there in Hawaii and Maui. It's just, you know, we, we, you hear that phrase, hell on earth? That was a little bit of hell on earth. It really, literally, literally was a little bit of hell on earth. Uh, about 100 people have died, and just the whole way it was set up with this hurricane to the south and this other system up north and just funneling those 89-mile winds over the island and causing that fire, and God is sovereign. We must pray for God's kindness and mercy for people to turn to the Lord, but it's also a picture, and this is what Jesus would have said in Luke 13. You know the verses that if you don't repent, you'll perish. It's, it's, it's a stark thing, but it's a reminder for us to see this is, this is, this is true here, this Truth of God and eternal fire, not just a little fire that lasts half a day or however long it lasted or a day. Eternal fire. And so people then, what we're saying here in verse 36, people need to realize that to not believe in Christ is disobeying Christ. To not believe is to not obey. That's what we're saying. And that results in, if we don't obey, eternal punishment. Indeed, there's no middle ground there's so many people, they're so fuzzy on what's going to happen. Some people, of course, don't believe there's something after this life, and others do believe, but they're fuzzy. Well, you know, maybe this or maybe that. These verses aren't fuzzy, are they? I really love them. They're just so clear. They're crystal clear. People are saved. People obey Christ, and they're saved. They have eternal life, or they don't obey. And then they are once you're under the wrath of God. Turn to Psalm 1. I read this, I think, a few weeks ago, but I'll look at it again. It's Again, the clarity of the scriptures, the first psalm, first of anything is important. Verses 5 and 6 is talking talking about the the wicked, the unbelievers. The wicked are not so, that is, they're not like the believers. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Then there's, there's three things here. It says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The judgment we'll talk about later at the end of the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment. They won't stand. They're not going to make it through it. That's the point. They will not stand in the judgment time, in the judgment day. Secondly, it says, nor, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners will never be able to be in this forever assembly of the righteous like us going to heaven. Never, never. That's the second consequence. The third thing is this. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Same word. I mean, they have the Greek Septuagint written around, I think, 200 B.C., and the Greek Septuagint, that word perish is the same as the word in John 3.16, which means everlasting destruction. It doesn't say it there, but that's what that word perish means in that verse. Very, very clear. Go back to John. Let's go down to John chapter 4, verses 7 to 45. There's a really long section. I want to look through all these verses and see how it relates to the gospel. It tells us more about the gospel. It also tells us about how we can be ones who can be sharing the gospel. I'm going to read some of the verses, not all of them, but it's this whole passage from 7 to 45. And again, these are passages that are really important for us. But first thing I want to say is this, is Jesus initiates with people. The text makes it, makes it very clear that he's very tired. You all understand being tired. I, I'm just so tired. I just can't do it. I, I just got to sit down. I got to take you know, You all understand being tired. He was very tired from the journey. And, of course, he worked really hard, hard as anybody ever worked in this world. He was working hard, and he was tired. But yet, yet, he was still thinking of this woman's need for salvation. That's what was going on. And like Jesus, we need to think of others, no matter how we feel. 
no matter how we feel, whatever we think. Hey, that person there has a need for salvation, and we need to be ones then who reach out to others like Jesus initiated, like he reached out to others. That's what we're to do. We need to be ones then who are going. We're not to wait for them to come to us. It's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to sit in my house, and if somebody knocks on the door and says they want to hear the gospel, then I'll share it with them. Uh, if somebody, I'm on the street, and somebody says, hey, how, do, how can I be saved? Well, then I'll share with them. No, that's not the point. The point is you initiate, you reach out. We know what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, 20, go, go. And, and, and probably, probably the best example, of course, Jesus' example, he was going all over the country of Israel, all over north, south, east, west, and even went into Samaria, as we see right here. But the example of Paul, you read Acts 13 to 28, he was on the go. He was a man that was moving. So in your mind, you're thinking, I'm to be going. You might have heard someone have this little sign on the inside of the door. You know, you're going out into the mission field. You know, when you step out of your house, you're in the mission field. And so we need to think that way. I need to be one then who is, is going. Then, he said, then we read that he reaches out to a woman. Women then were considered to be second class or lower class, whatever. And in general the men weren't to associate with women, particularly in public, we're saying. They weren't to associate. You're not to be seen with the woman. Can you imagine a culture like that? Here's the women over here. They weren't to mix. In fact, look at verse um, 27. At this point, his disciples came. They, They were out getting some food. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. You see, that's the point. Amazed. You're speaking with a woman. What are you doing? You're not supposed to do that, Jesus. But that's the first thing. And the worst thing is he was speaking to a Samaritan. I mean, you know, Samaritan, like, whoa. They're the, they're the bad guys. We don't like them. And they had a little unwritten rule. You don't even walk on their land. And so here they are on this Samaritan land. And Jesus was, was associating with this woman who was a Samaritan. That's what he was doing. He was talking to her. And, and the point is, is Jesus did not discriminate, right? He, we, we hear about discrimination a lot in this country and around the world. And yes, we're not to discriminate. And so, so too, as Christians, we should never discriminate. And it's easy. We read in, in James 2 about people who discriminate in this particular church. Don't discriminate. No matter if a person is a man or a woman or young or old, rich or poor, black or white or whatever they are, don't discriminate. That's, that's the point here. That one phrase in Romans, excuse me, Revelation 7 9 and 10, it says, every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And that, that's speaking of that time when we're in heaven and we're all before the Lord and worshiping together. Can you imagine what that's like? And of course, I don't, I don't know this answer. You know, we, you know, what color are people that are glorified? We have no idea. But, but, but the point is, is, is the people that are in heaven are from everywhere. They're every color, every race, every creed. That, that's, that's, that's the overall point here. Third point, Jesus didn't wait to share the gospel with the lost. So oftentimes, as people, we think, well, I'm just going to wait for just the perfect time to share the gospel. I'm just going to wait for the right time. And yes, we need to be patient, but sometimes we're too slow. We're too slow. We wait too long, and we miss the opportunity. We need to be, I believe, in general, a little more aggressive, a little more direct, a little more assertive. That's what I believe we see here, this example We continue, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have have given you living water. So a key aspect of the gospel 
important point. And even as you share the gospel with people, this is a key point. A key aspect of the gospel is that God wants to give us a gift. That's what he wants us to do. And a gift, as you know, doesn't cost you a thing. You don't sit at some event receiving a gift, and then you hand out $10 for the gift or 20 You just take the gift. It, it's free. We understand that point. And, and, and as, as people, I think we all like gifts. Somebody gives something to you, whatever it is, you like gifts. And God wants to give people a gift. It says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, of course, we know this. People pay money, and sometimes big money, for things that they believe will make them happy. We all, we all know that, and maybe we've done some of that, too. I probably have. You buy some, hey, this is going to make me happy, or however you want to define that word happy. Eternal life, though, is that which is free. This is amazing. Going to heaven is free. Becoming a child of God is free. Entering into the kingdom of God is free. Being forgiven and justified is free. All these things are free. It's just it's astounding to, to think this way. And what, what we see here is that what Jesus is doing, he's making this connection between water coming from the well and this living water. And he's saying that this, this gift he's talking about is this living water. And living water, you have to understand, is a metaphor for eternal life. We talk about eternal life a whole lot in the Gospel of John, and living water is a metaphor, another way to talk about this eternal life. First, we understand that living water is water. And I think you all know this, that, that to live, you need water more than anything else. You know, you hear whether you're supposed to drink six glasses of water a day or eight, whatever. The body, on average, is made up of 60% water. That's what it is. And there's water, all these cells and body and everything, organs. It's water, water, water. And that's the picture. And so the point here is this, is, is, is having eternal life means you have then this living water. And this is living water. And, and the idea is coming up from a well. You, you imagine, you know, in a well water, it's fresh. It's not like this city water. It tastes funny. It's well. Well, sometimes well water can taste funny too. But the point is the idea, this is fresh water. It's living water. It's powerful water. That's what it is. It's not stale. It's not like the things of the world that people have that people want to make them happy, that have no eternal value. It says in Mark eight thirty six. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's one of the strongest verses when you talk about life and possessions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? As you know, people have all kinds of things. You go to somebody's house or wherever, and you see, wow, they've got all kinds of stuff here. It doesn't profit souls what's most important we continue verses 13 to 14 jesus answered and said to her everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that i give him shall never thirst but the water that i will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life and so if you're drinking this water then you're experiencing eternal life and you're always satisfied you're always filled with the spirit you always have this love and this joy and this peace and this power and this purpose from God. Wonderful if you have this water. And sometimes our lives are dragging along. Sometimes our lives are sluggish because we're not drinking of this living water. They're not doing it. Turn to John 7. We'll look at this in another uh, a couple of weeks. But similar thing here. Very similar. On that last 
the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone comes, anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So here's not well water. It's river water, but the point is it's still living water. The same idea, the same truth here. And then Jesus said there, he says, If you knew who it is who say, says to you, give me a drink. And, and why is he saying this? This woman needs to know who he is. This woman needs to know that he is not just a man, that he is not just a prophet, but that he is actually the Messiah. And, 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 and her, because he, Samaritans understood some of the truth, but they're one of those mixed religions. They understood some of the truth from the, the Jewish faith, but not all the things, and so a little confused. But she understood they're supposed to be this Messiah. She, she knew that. So here he is standing before her. In fact, turn to 25 and 26 of this chapter. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Made it very clear. I am the Messiah. You wonder what this woman was thinking about. I mean, then the next point, look at verses 15 to 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And what did Jesus say then? He he had to make sure she she understood some of their point. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, that you have said truly. So he... He went right to the point. We we understand this, I believe, this truth here that when you're talking to somebody about the gospel, they have to understand that they're sinful and they need a Savior, they need a Messiah before they can really be interested. That's what he's doing. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm also the Savior. I'm the one who wants to save you from your sins. And, of course, she was clearly convicted. I don't know exactly when the conviction, but, you know, she's understand this guy's the Messiah and she understands she's a sinner. Then we keep going, verses 21 to 24, same chapter. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a lot said here. I just want to sum up a few important things. So, God gives you eternal life, free gift. We've talked about this. And God wants you to give to him. And what's the most important thing that he wants you to give to him? Your love, your worship. That's, that's all we're saying here. You should love and adore God because he is your Lord. He is your creator. He is your savior. And turn to Psalm 100. I want you to see how it says really the same thing. Psalm 100, first two verses. Verse 1 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Shout, serve, and come before him. Verse 3, know that the Lord himself is God. That's the first point. Know that the Lord. Okay, we're talking about worshiping the one who's the Lord. Then it says, it is he who made us. He's the creator. And not we ourselves. And we are his people. Meaning, we're saved. Okay? He is the Lord. 
He is our creator. He is our savior. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Also then that makes it clear that he is our shepherd. And that's what we're talking about is, is God wants us to be ones who worship him as our Lord, worship him as our creator, worship him as our savior. And Jesus wants to explain then to this lady this truth about worship, and he wants this woman to worship him. You see, that, that's, that's the ultimate thing. Ultimate thing. We read before that verse, I must decrease, but God must increase. And, and there's a verse, Psalm 57, 11, it says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and may your glory be over all the earth. That should be our prime prayer. God, you be exalted. You be worshipped. That's what we should want. We should want God to have worshipers, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to be a worshiper. But she's a little confused, and she was thinking that worship needs to be in a place. Jesus doesn't even have a place. Back then, the Samaritans would worship at this place called Mount Gerizim. That was their place. And the Jews, they had their place in Jerusalem, okay? And, and God wanted some of that, but, but the point here is this. It's not, worship is not a matter of being in a certain place, right? I mean, I would hope that your home is a place of worship, right? Right? I would hope that. I would hope that if you're driving around the car, your car is a place of worship, Right? And I would hope that if you're a workplace, there's, that's a place of worship. I know you're working, but you can worship the Lord in your split second. You can worship the Lord. I'm out there at the pool. And not all the time, but, you know, when, when you're swimming, the, the strokes are pretty the same. You know, you get you're doing the same thing over and over again, the same repetition. So I can worship. I can do it, and I do it. You worship. You can worship there. Now, the only problem, the little problem here, and it relates to an important point for us, is that sometimes, well, usually they play music. And it's not Christian music. And sometimes it's really loud, and I really don't like that hip-hop stuff. I just could be honest. Just, mm. Anyway, it's distracting. It's distracting that when I'm in the pool like that. But God still helps me. And if I'm underwater and I swim underwater, you know, I can <laughs> tune it out a little more. The point is this, is God wants us to be worshipers. And what he's saying here, you can worship any place that you're at, any place. And so think about that for your life. This is a practical point. I want to be more of a worshiper wherever I am at. I want my home to be a place of worship and that's, that's what we're saying here. Now, he goes on. This is a very important point. He finished up. He says, you need to worship in spirit and truth. And that just simply means the spirit means you worship by your spirit. It's, it's, this is, worship is a spiritual thing. You don't need anything else. You don't, you know, some religion, you've got to take this or pay this or do this. You need some kind of physical things to worship. Or you got some, you know, when I grew up, you know, they had a, uh, in the Catholic Church, the statue of Joseph, I think, was on the left. And the statue of Mary was on the right. I think the statue of Christ was back straight center. But, but they had these things. Oh, we've got to worship us. No, no, no. In spirit. And it's by the Holy Spirit that we worship, okay? And it's by the truth, which means if to worship properly, you need to know the truth. You need to know the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. That's what we talk about this. You need to be able to worship in spirit and truth, and that's what Jesus is telling us, telling us right there. We continue on. Back to John chapter 4, verse 34 to 38. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, which is a, I would say, secondarily, you can apply that to your own life. My food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I want to do what God wants me to do. A great verse. We continue. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already who who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus explained his purpose again here. And his purpose then was to proclaim the gospel to people. And specifically then here, this one woman, again, the example. We have so many examples in the Bible of how that one person is important. And he was explaining the gospel. We see very clearly different elements of it here in John chapter 4. And then later, what happens is she goes into town, this village that she was living in, and she then tells them, hey, this person's here. I think this might be the Messiah. And he stayed there for two days. Two days, and it says, says um, many more believed because of his word. And I like that. People, the Jews particularly, look for signs. They believed because of his word, because of his set, what he said, the truth that he said. And so this should be our passion of heart, too. That God wants us to be ones who love the lost, love the unsaved, see people. Again, it's seeing people. And I think, I think and I've shared this many times, the verses of Matthew 9, 36, and 7 are classic. It's people, different translations say it. One, one says they're distressed and downcast. Another says that people are harassed and helpless. So you think about a person, you see their person, you see what they're wearing, their hair, all this stuff, and you might hear their voice. What's going on inside? Unbelievers are harassed and helpless because of the devil and because of their flesh. They're distressed and downcast. They're sheep without a shepherd. Again, this visualization should help you then to be ones who have more compassion and more love for the lost. And then he says, this is the time to reap. And we live in this church age. Now is the time. I was just reading John 9 today. It says the time is coming when no man can work. Now is the time to reap. And so we need to be doing as God leads us to share the gospel. And, and what he's saying is people will get saved. Those whom he has chosen ahead of time to save, these then will get saved. So we're going through John 4, a lot of good throughs. And I would encourage you to read through the whole thing sometime. Let's turn out at the next major portion. I'm going to look at this is John chapter 5. John chapter 5, 19 through 20. Three. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Son loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you may marvel, will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he who has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. A lot of important points here about the Father and the Son and the gospel. Let me just share a few. First, the Father and the Son work together. They are a team. They have a very, very close relationship. It's the Gospel of John that makes this super clear, how they're such tight team together. It's, it's really encouraging. The Son only does what the Father is doing and only what the Father wants him to do. 
It's amazing. And that, with that, then we understand Jesus is a humble and obedient son. He's not disobedient at all. He does only what his father wants him to do. You, you think about that. You read the pages of the Gospels and the Scriptures there. Everything he did, he did because his father wanted him to do it. But, but you think about that for your life. Am I doing all that the Father wants and only that the Father wants? I mean, I'm not there yet, okay? But I know God's trying to teach me to be better. I get up in the morning and say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do today. That kind of prayer is important. Middle of the day, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. And if you're not doing it, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Thank you that I'm forgiven. And you move on. But that should be the attitude that we have. Third, we see this. We saw it in John 3.35. The Father greatly loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. We, we cannot imagine this intimate, this, this relationship, eternal relationship that they have with each other, this love that the one has for the other. And the Father and the Son, they work together. It says to raise the dead and give them life. And there's a couple things I want to say. I've said this before, but John makes this clear. When we talk about the gospel, there's two points. There's two main points that the results, that is. It's, it's what God takes away and what God gives us. The verse in John 1.29, John the Baptist talking, sums this up very well. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? That's, that's, that's this first part of the gospel. Result. The second part, we're reading today more so, is what he gives us. And the gospel, John, talks about this so much. Giving us eternal life. Giving us his living water. I'm the bread of life, and I am the resurrection, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the light of the world. All these things. It talks about what he gives us. He gives us. He gives us. He takes away our sin, and he gives us life. That's the point. He raises the dead and gives them life. That is what is happening here. And the raising of the dead, then, is spiritual in nature. In that, when we're justified, when we're born again, then we are saved and we have this new spirit. And it's physical nature, which happens at Christ's coming, at the rapture, and we get brand new glorified bodies. So we have to understand the resurrection of the dead takes place in two phases. Now, we also see from these verses that the Father appointed his Son to be the judge which means the judge of the living and the judge of the dead. Turn to Acts 17, verse 31. Well, verse 30, therefore having over, 17, 30, 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world and righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, he's a judge of the living and the dead. That means that the, the living is the believers and, and the dead are the ones who are unbelievers. And of course, the judgment of the believers takes place at Christ's coming, end of this age. Really, in terms of time, years, it's not that far from now, because we are in the end times. That's when that takes place, this judgment. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.10. See what it says there. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to us as believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that's this whole, we've talked about this a few months back, about rewards. We're to be rewarded, okay? 
Jesus says in Revelation 22:12, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to what he has done. This is rewards, okay? You've got life, forgiveness, and all these blessings in heaven, but God rewards people differently according to what they have done. Another verse, turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, talking more about this judgment, this timing here and all this. John, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 3. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That be made alive means glorified, new body. Each in his own turn order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, at his second coming, that's when it takes place. This age is over, Christ is back. We have this bema seat, the judgment. Judgment of unbelievers happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, about a thousand years after this judgment of the believers. That's what takes place. We've talked about this before. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11, 15. I have said this. It, must, it has to be the most sobering time you could ever imagine. I mean, billions of people, I believe, will be there. Billions. And they'll be judged. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire because they were not ones who were born again, saved. Next point here from these verses in John chapter 5. Both the Father and the Son are to be worshipped and glorified. The Father wants the Son to be honored, and the Son wants the Father to be honored. I'm not going to look at, look at John 17, first uh, four or five verses. It's, it's, it's so encouraging to see their heart to want the other one to be glorified, to be worshipped, to be honored. That's what they want. And, of course, isn't this, and I already said this today, the most important and primary result of our salvation is that we then should worship the Lord. That's it. This is Psalm 145, I know it's, it's, a, it's a family, it's a Hogan family favorite, Psalm 145. We all love it. But that, how it starts is classic, and how it starts illustrates his point here. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. And that's like a commitment, and we need to have that in our heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you, God. I'm going to praise you. But then look what it says. Every day I will bless you, and I'll praise your name forever and ever. So there, there's two points here. I'm going to praise you every day, and I'm going to praise you forever and ever. So when? Every day. How long? Forever and ever and ever. And that should be our desire. I mean, I mean, just a simple thing. You know, you're going through the week, it's Monday. Well, I'm going to praise the Lord today. It's Tuesday. Well, I'm going to praise the Lord today. You know, we talk about your home being a place of worship, wherever you're at. I'm going to worship the Lord. This, this should be paramount. And if you're not worshiping the Lord like you ought, then you're thinking of other things or you're thinking about yourself way, way too much. Okay, this, this is a key, key point. We'll go back to John, chapter 5. And one more main point here. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So this, this classic, we mentioned John 3.16, be one of those classic sort of standalone verses on the gospel. John 3.36, one of those other verses. This is another one. You'll find this in gospel tracts, you know. And it's good. I mean, there's a lot of other points to the gospel, but it does share some very important points. What do we learn here? First, he says, truly, truly, which is Jesus' way to emphasize what he's talking about. He said this many times, truly, truly. And so listen up. That's another way. Listen up to this. This is need to see this here. You've heard that phrase, the gospel truth. This is the gospel truth. The gospel that is the truth 
and the truth that's most important in this world indeed is the gospel. Then he says you need to hear the gospel. Because you see there what he says is you need to hear and believe, right? Not just one or the other, both. You need to hear, which means you hear with your ears and you understand in your mind what the gospel is. As I've said before, who Jesus is and what he does. Who he is that he's the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, and that he died on the cross to pay for our sins and then rose again. So you're hearing the truth. You're hearing the truth. Now let me say this. There are a whole ton of people in this world in history past who've heard the truth and do not believe. Right? They've heard it. You know what I'm saying? You probably know people like this. They've heard it, but they don't believe. It says you need to hear and believe. Now the next thing I want to say is this. It says believe him who sent me. Very interesting what goes on here. Believes him who sent me. Who is the him who sent, him, sent me? Who's he referring to? Believe him who sent me. Who sent Jesus down to this earth? It's the Father. You need to believe in the Father. God sent Jesus to this earth. The whole purpose and plan of salvation was God's idea. He sent Jesus to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, and then was raised from the dead so that all who believe in him have eternal life. That's what's going on. And so hearing, hearing and believing is so, so important. So we need to, and again, our job as people, you know, we need to tell people, and hopefully they hear. And sometimes people, they hear with their ears, but doesn't even get past that. They hear it, but they just don't even mentally understand what you're saying. Pray for people that they hear with their ears and with their mind, and then believe in their heart. We see here, then, what this is saying to us, that we need to believe in the Father, is we see, again, the relationship of the Father and the Son, and they are perfectly united. And if we say we believe in the Father, which is what it says here in John 5, 24, we're to believe in him who sent me, we're to believe in the Father, then we're also believing in the Son. Okay, believe in the Father, John 5, 24. Believe in the Son, John three sixteen says that. Let's go over this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him... Who's the him there? It's Jesus. Please in him that has everlasting life and will not perish in. And so if we believe in the Son, like it says in John 3, 16, then we're also believing in the Father. So it's, it's, it's important here. Some religions just say you need to believe in God, okay? You have the, the Islamic faith, and they just have this Allah person, okay? That's it. But, but and others say, well, you just need to believe in Christ, but what we're seeing here, this Christianity is unique. Because you have the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And supposed to believe in the Father, supposed to believe in the Son. That's what he says. And that truth there about Jesus being sent by his Father appears so many times. I should look up how many times the word sent is used in the Gospel of John. It is all over the place. The Father sent me. And so Jesus just saying, I'm here, but man, I'm here because he sent me. He really gave credit to the Father. It's, it's very, very encouraging. And so to believe in the Father then means you believe in Jesus. You believe in the gospel and who Jesus is and, and then what he did. But what else do we see here in John 5, 24? It says, it says, he who hears the word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And I mentioned this, I believe, last week. The tense of the verbs here is what tense? Hear and believe is present tense, okay? And I think this counters so many people or religions that say you can't know if you're saved and on this earth. You've got to wait till you die. Then you'll find out. No. It's, it's here and believe right now has eternal life. It's, it's so clear. So when you hear and believe, it's at that point that you're saved and you have eternal life. It's not in the future. 
but, but it's at that time that you're saved, at that very moment that you believe, that you then have eternal life, that you're justified, that you're saved, that you know you're going to heaven, that you receive the Holy Spirit, that you, as it says in Colossians 1, you are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. And there's just so much that he does for us at that point, that moment that we then are saved. Then it says we won't come into judgment, which means you won't be judged for your sins, for Christ took your place when Jesus was on the cross. He was judged for your sins. You need to think about this. What happened? He was judged. The father was punishing his own son instead of punishing you. You deserved the payment. You deserved the punishment, but God put it on his son. There's these verses I've shared these many times. There's a trio of them that I use a lot. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteous of God in him. And then finally, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. All saying the same. He died for us. He took our place. That's what we understand. We says there too in John 5.24, we learn we pass out of death into life. I love this. We're not spiritually dead anymore. We're spiritually alive. We have the life of God in us. It's according to the work of the Spirit on the cross and the work of Christ on the cross and the work of the Spirit in our heart that we then are saved. So it's so clear, like I said before. It's not vague. It's not confusing. It's black and white. You hear and you believe in the Father and the Son. You then are one who is saved. And so this is the point. This is the truth, and it's for every person in the world. One final, a couple final points, John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we understand there's a resurrection of the, of the living, you know, that's the time when Christ comes back, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the millennial kingdom. But there's something else it says here. It says believers do what? They do good deeds. Unbelievers do evil deeds. And in some ways, this is relatively obvious. I mean, there's some people you know that man, they seem like really good people. And, and, and if you just want to say, is that person saved or not? Well, he's really good. So it's sometimes hard to know, you know, but God can help us to give us discernment, but we don't know for sure because God only knows. But in general, what he's saying is that Christians, they do good deeds, and unbelievers do evil deeds. That's what happens. It does say in Matthew chapter 7, it says, By their fruits you shall know them. Let's finish up with First John. Just want to read these verses here. And you have to like the Gospel of John for this, just the whole black and whiteness of it the clarity that God wants us to have. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has, been, has seen him or know, knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices Righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 
And no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word again. So many different truths about the gospel that are important for us to understand. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, we have heard these things here. Help them to help us understand them in our minds, but then to get them into our heart. And that's by your spirit, God. We pray that we would be ones who love you and know what you did for us and love others and want to share this truth with others. Help us, God, to be ones. As we look at the lost, we have compassion for them. We see them as one then who are like sheep without a shepherd. So we thank you, Lord, for everyone here today. I want to pray for Carol Hardy. Continue to cause her to be healed up. And, and pray for Lord, just as I mentioned, talk to Bruce just briefly, that there be no infection, Lord, and other healing. And then just they have wisdom to know how to, the next step they need to take, whether it's chemo, radiation, whatever. We just trust you, God, for that and thank you so much for it. We just want to see you, God, do a real miracle and just help them both. Give them all then the grace and peace that you need. And, and others, Lord, who may not be with us today that aren't feeling well, we ask you for, for them as well. Lord, I want to pray, too, for just the legal process that you continue to move this on as we are transitioning ownership of this property from Hope Bible to Bethel. We ask you to keep doing that and make that smooth. And Again, thank you, Lord, for this, this world we have. And, and I want to pray. I don't usually pray for this, but, Lord, I pray you bring a little cooler weather. It's been pretty hot lately. We'd ask for some rain as well. And we know we can ask you for anything. And, but we thank you, God, that you're in charge. And we thank you that you give us air conditioning as well. We don't want to uh, minimize just the blessings that you give us in so, so many ways. But thank you so much again. The main thing, we thank you for the life that we have, the eternal life that we have, the relationship that we have with you, Father, and with Son, and with, with the Holy Spirit as well. But we bless you now. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.